to the um oh uh gentlemen are you what are you what are you doing there is that a pre-etheric writing device from the gray um I, i'm not i'm not sure this is the appropriate place to hey fella yeah yeah you come come here come here. can you talk to us for a minute Meldrum here, live for the Crepuscule Notion. Repuscule. We're interviewing Order of Goetica names with late-breaking news. Please, names, uh, fill us in about what's been going on tonight. Um, well, so, uh, uh, are you here to talk about my research or the- Gentlemen, this is neither the appropriate place nor time. I wish you would just come back later in the episode. Uh, this place is so surreal sometimes. I think I need a drink. What'll I have tonight? <laughs> Welcome back to The Secret Cellar. Tonight's episode has simultaneously turned out to be one of the most heartfelt and also the strangest, most whimsical episodes yet. So buckle in for that ride. I don't have a standard format of a single guest this evening, but instead I'm going to be inviting several guests onto the show, uh, friends that I met recently at Gen Con. You'll see Gen Con is a common theme throughout, as well as some thoughts from me about an experience that we had there, and at the end, a little bit of preposterousness from uh, an interview we had live, in-character, in-person, impromptu with Evan Saft uh, at Gen Con as a Vizlay in the order of Goetica. So uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy all of that. I do also have one bit of self-promotion. I'm super excited to be involved with an Invisible Sun live play streaming on Twitch in collaboration with my dear friends Ian Smith, Michael Parker, Alexei Othan and Gerard, and Dr. Scott Robinson. We will be streaming the second episode of our show tonight at 7 p.m. on Monty Cook Games' Twitch channel. If you're not able to make it tonight for the show, you can always catch the archive on Twitch or after a few days on Monty Cook Games' YouTube channel. We'll be streaming tonight and then bi-weekly from here on out until September. Do come join us if you're able. A special thanks to Darcy and the folks at Montecook Games. It's been such an honor and a joy to work with them on this. Without further ado, let's dig into the crunchy bits of the Descent into Midnight game and system, followed by a Vizla's Call segment about storytelling and the human side of things. So I'll apologize ahead of time for the Gen Con voice. I'm on the way back from Gen Con on the road right now. I'll be arriving back in Arizona tomorrow. So excited to see my wife Alini and my child Emma and to be back in my own bed. But Gen Con was wonderful. So many things were wonderful. But I want to tell you about one of them, which happened on Sunday morning, which is an unusual thing to say because Sunday morning at Gen Con, probably usually not filled with wonder. I signed up on a whim a few weeks ago for a playtest of a game called Descent into Midnight. Rich Howard is the conceptual lead on it. I'm going to butcher these last names and I apologize. Richard Kreutz-Landry is also working on it along with Taylor and Brandon Leon Gambetta. It's real hard to explain at their website, descentintomidnight.com, their little tagline is Promote teamwork, spiritual reflection, and environmental awareness. Hope, teamwork, and community clash with despair, loneliness, and corruption. This is a game about fighting for your safety and your home and those you love and your environment 
versus spreading corruption. This is a topic that is probably on a lot of our minds in the real world. In this game, I think part of what happened for us was it provided a really, truly funny, lovely, dark, beautiful place <laughs> for all the people at our table to play in. Um, and I don't know, at some point during the thing, I think maybe four out of the six of us like cried, like just straight up shed tears during character creation and setting creation. <laughs> we hardly even played the game too, too much. Um, but the thing that we were building together was so hauntingly beautiful that when something threatened to corrupt and destroy it, I felt it more viscerally than most experiences I've had throughout many years of playing and GMing games. I've certainly never had an experience like this <laughs> at a table with mostly random strangers at a convention <laughs> during a playtest, not even the actual fully developed version of the game. So I want to talk tonight about a few of the mechanics and a few of, you know, kind of why my UX brain thinks some of this happened the way it did. In other words, the game decisions that this game makes to foster and nurture that kind of space and to allow those kinds of experiences to happen. And then I'm going to have some other folks on the show uh, to talk a little bit more about what actually happened and sort of the emotional experience of it. So first, a word about Powered by the Apocalypse. Not a system I am super familiar with. I've never actually played an Apocalypse World game. I've had a little bit of experience playing PBTA games. I've heard about Powered by the Apocalypse increasingly over the last year, largely from Troy Pitchelman and some other podcasters who have talked about it. Some of the times I've played games in this system, I've felt I've had fun, I've had a great time, but I've felt like I was playing a CRPG, a computer role-playing game where I'm sort of pointing and clicking my way through to the next step and following along someone's script. And I don't even think those were poorly run games. I think they were kind of the default out-of-the-box way that these are supposed to be run. I actually think that has some strengths, but it has some weaknesses as well in certain contexts. My basic conclusion about this is I think PBTA, unless it is wielded in an expert hand and in a particular way, its greatest strength is also its greatest weakness. I think its strength lies in approachability, and it's very economical in terms of getting interesting things to happen in a story, because it leans really heavily on all of the tropes and concepts and ideas that we already have in our mind. We can quickly flesh out the whole rest of a scene, patching together bunch of ideas that we have in our head from books and movies and stories and video games that we all know deeply already. And I don't think that's bad. I think that drastically lowers the hurdles to approachability. It makes the story move quickly and be really accessible and be really fun. And it's kind of a wild ride on our roller coaster. And I think that is really lovely for new players or players who want to just dive in and get a really good story told quickly. But there's also a sense where unless you're specifically working to subvert those tropes, you're going to end up with a very similar story every time, or you're not going to rise above sort of all of the things that we've had in our minds. 
So I was real curious because I know this is a game being put together by really creative um, people who think a bit outside the box. And so not having played it, Apocalypse World seemed like a strange choice to me. I was wrong. <laughs> they are making masterful use of this system and it was able to do really remarkable things in the short amount of time we played. And I want to speak about why it worked so well in this case. The first, of course, I just have to say, was the GMing and the leadership and the playership at our table. We had a phenomenal group of people at Sunday morning on Gen Con. I don't know why, but Richard uh, was running our game. He was so gracious and careful to create a space that was welcoming and that everybody could be drawn into without reserve. And that made a huge difference for the type of game we were playing because it can be an emotional game because it's explicitly asking you to sort through your own emotions and reactions to possibly very scary things. The spreading of corruption is a horrifying concept. And when that's made real to you, it leaves you really vulnerable. But that was one aspect of it. But purely mechanically, as far as the game is concerned, first of all, this game is in a strange setting. I am not deeply familiar with marine biology or the deep undersea or anything else happening in the bottom of an ocean. I did do a little bit of homework because I had heard Mel Fox and Allie Grower's podcast, Get Hype. They had two episodes where they spoke with Rich Howard, the concept lead for the game. And the thing he was getting hype about at the moment was one particular episode of Blue Planet that dealt with the very strange things happening deep, deep in the ocean. And watching that was a great way to sort of prime my brain and give me a little bit of the mood and kind of the aesthetic of what was going on, even if I still don't actually know anything about what happens in an ocean. So that was helpful. But I couldn't glance at this and immediately assume what kinds of stories should be told here. So in this case, all of the strengths of PBTA really kicked in here for me because the playbooks, which are kind of like the character classes, really did a good job helping me to understand what it means to think about my character not only on a physical level, but also on a sort of emotional, like psycho-emotional level, because their descriptions are keyed very deeply into being partly in the physical world and partly in the emotional or mental world. And all of the various things that you could do really helped make quick connections to the story and to the other characters, and it, what came out of it didn't feel rote. I don't think I could have jumped into this setting so quickly or so deeply without something that kind of led me by the hand as much as Powered by the Apocalypse as a system does. So that was helpful. But there's another aspect to it too. A, just a mechanic that's really interesting. In this world, all of the players are playing characters who simultaneously exist in a physical space, the deep undersea, but also in a mental space. It's called the echo. It's kind of a psychic landscape where echoes and emotions and psionic communications from the mind are bouncing around. And one result of that is that all of the player characters have a special bond and, unless you specifically don't want to be, are constantly mentally speaking to each other. You don't have to be in the same physical space to be able to have a conversation with each other as characters. And what that lends to is a sort of odd flattening 
of the frames of reference we usually have where we switch back and forth between. I had Jason, I'm thinking about what my character's going to do, and then I'll switch into character and say, hmm, my character says this or does this, and then I switch back and we're talking, bantering at the table, figuring out what our party's gonna do, and then we switch into character. And that whole layer got flattened away to a great extent, which is really interesting because it allowed us to focus, I don't know, it brought me closer as a player to my character and also me closer as a player to the other player's characters. Um, so that was really interesting. And then there's another aspect that's hard to put my finger on, but I think it's this. If I am a rogue exploring in a dungeon and the trap goes off, I'm immediately jumping in my mind to what would Indiana Jones do? But when that action has finished, the boulder rolls after me and I dodge out of the way of the boulder and something happens or it doesn't, and then that scene is over. There's no more work to be done. In this case, the triggers and the actions that come as a result help you figure out what to do next as a physical action, but they don't and can't tell you <laughs> what to do emotionally. There's no playbook or script or trigger that is going to truly do the work the emotional work that I need to do to know what comes next mentally or emotionally for my character. And so I had a character who was the, the playbook was called the empath. I was a little more deeply connected to the emotional leadership of my group. I could know what all the other characters were thinking and sort of pull them together and unify them and, and take their pain upon myself and absorb it so they could have less of it. So there was one moment where my character began to understand that this corruption that was going to affect a place in the ocean that we all had deep connections to and loved and the creatures who lived there. And because that was something we had built together so lovingly and carefully, having the threat of corruption appear to attack that felt very, very real, I think, for each of us in a different way and needing to go work together to solve that became imperative. <laughs> so the trigger was like, hey, you are aware of this corruption. You need to go work with people to come up with a plan to fix this. And that was the instruction. But that doesn't begin to touch on the deep team emotional work that had to happen for us to not only plan, but also figure out what to do with our own tendency toward despair or toward dread as a result of this thing that we had just learned. Because of that, even working from the playbook and from the triggers and from these sort of sentences telling us what to do, there was still a whole lot of work to do <laughs> that we had to figure out on our own that I think is fundamentally different from when you're playing in a space that's entirely physical. So I found that really interesting. And the final note, I referenced this at the beginning, but this is just incredibly relevant right now. I think if I had played Descent into Midnight a few years ago, I would have found it really interesting, and I probably still would have had a lovely and, you know, emotional time of it. But I don't think it would have been quite so real or quite so horrifying, because this allowed me, in a safe way that was not too on the nose or too literal, to sort of work through a lot of the fears that I've had and a lot of the even the desire sometimes to just want to give up and hide because of what I see as a lot of approaching darkness in the world right now. And because of that, I think it was just, it came, it came at a good time. I think it was relevant for each of us in different ways. 
and gave us a really lovely place to play with absolute strangers and work through some of these questions that we have. And I know it's not just me. I've read some other tweets. I spent some time talking with my very good friend Ian, who played in a game uh, at the convention as well. And they said that their hair was standing on end for much of the game and um, also had a similar depth of connection to the things that they had created and the stories that were told and the characters that formed. So kudos to the entire team. You have made something really special. I know it's still very much in process and there's a lot of work to be done, but the vision that is there for something really unusual and unexpected and lovely is um, I'm so grateful for it. <laughs> and I'm really excited to see where the game goes as it really moves toward polish and production and final words and voices and mechanics get worked out. One of the things that's become real to me in the past year is how beautiful the community surrounding games and stories can be. Stories are deeply human, born out of empathy, which is why I'm so excited to introduce you all to a new sponsor of this show, Gamers Giving. Gamers Giving is a 501c3 charity made by gamers for gamers in need. Gamers Giving takes note when someone from the gaming community experiences tragedy, a house burning down, or the onset of cancer, for example, and hosts events specifically to raise money in order to make life just a little bit easier for them. There are several other wonderful charities that raise money from gaming events in order to help folks outside of our community, and that's important too. But Gamers Giving is special because it focuses on building bonds within the community by helping other gamers. I know that you'd donate an XP for a member of your party to re-roll. This is that, but IRL. Find the Gamers Giving community online at facebook.com gamersgiving and see how you can pitch in and support this weird, lovely family we're all a part of. I have, of course, included a link in the show notes. I'm proud to say that Gamers Giving will be a repeat sponsor of The Secret Seller, so you'll hear more about the work they're doing in coming episodes. My heartfelt thanks to Gamers Giving, a charity by gamers for gamers. Enough with the mechanics. Let's get on a phone call with the people who are in the game I was speaking about. I'm excited to introduce you to Stephanie Midlock, James Pearson, Drew Corkiel, and VJ Brown. Hello, my undersea friends. How are you all this evening? Oh, I'm doing just fine. <laughs> We're all doing great here. Everything's just peachy. My friend, Magnifica. <laughs> 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 my goodness so um i have invited a couple of the friends that i met at this gen con game i've been speaking about of descent into midnight we are all here on a pod call appropriate being that we are a recently developed pod of sea creatures um and uh i am gonna have each introduce themselves say just a bit about who they are and what they do and then we're gonna talk a little bit about the game that we played so drew uh welcome hi thanks uh are we introducing ourselves as uh our actual this self? this is actually about you my dear friend drew corkill <laughs> okay <laughs> uh so i am drew corkill uh i am a ux designer and uh that it was my first gen con that i've been to and uh this was actually one of my first rpgs i've ever played so uh the experience was 
uh, unique in many ways. You can be honest. It was a little weird, huh? I don't, I wouldn't call it weird. <laughs> I, I would call it, uh, it made me realize what it was all about. So cool. Cool. Uh, James. Hey, uh, my name is James Pearson. Uh, I'm a software quality engineer in my real life, but I would much rather be an RPG designer slash player slash podcaster. Um, we've been to Gen Con a few times. I think this is our third time. Uh, but I have to say, out of this Gen Con and probably out of every Gen Con we've been to, this Descent into Midnight game was the highlight. Wow. Stephanie? Hey there, my name is uh, Stephanie Midlock, and I'm James's wife. That's why he's using we, not the royal we. <laughs> um, yeah, so as he said, this is our third Gen Con. In my real life, I work uh, for an art museum, and I get to handle all the treasures in the back, so it's like the best. And then in uh, the online world, I am a co-host of a new podcast called Athrobeth, which if you're interested in like Tolkien's weird legendarium, Ooh. this might be for you. Uh, it first episode drops September 5th, podcast.athrobeth.com. Everybody check it out. <laughs> uh, VJ, welcome. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm VJ Brown. I uh, am a graphic design, a freelance graphic designer in real life uh, on in the internet and podcast world, I am the storyteller for Hedged in a Changeling Story, an actual play podcast using Changeling the Lost. And uh, this was actually my first Gen Con. And so this was a, a delight and a treat, uh, even though I've been a pretty long time role player personally. We are a whole bunch of nerds. Um, <laughs> well, welcome everyone to The Secret Seller. It is such a pleasure to have you on here. Um, yeah, I am very curious. I, I talked in my previous segment about some of the kind of intention and design details that I think have to go into creating a space that can produce games <laughs> that are possibly the best that James has experienced in three years of going to Gen Con. But I am curious now to hear a bit about the game that we played. Stephanie, why don't you begin and tell us a little bit about uh, what made this game just different from other games that you've played at a con? Sure, absolutely. So again, we played Descent into Midnight, which is um, a powered by the apocalypse uh, system set under the sea um, in a world that's been totally untouched by, you know, human influence. Uh, and that immediately kind of lends itself to kind of, to bring you out of your shell a little bit in character creation. Unintended. I yeah. Know. Hey. Hey. <laughs> that was so good, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it gives you basically no rules on really what you could be. Um, and for me, that's the first thing that was really different. I hadn't played a system where I wasn't sort of a humanoid before. Um, I really enjoyed that because it really let me do literally whatever I wanted. And so that was kind of special. Um, and, you know, the amount of time that we spent on character creation and then discussing it as a group, I think that's something you see with a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse games because it is so, you know, collaborative. Um, but this one was just great in that it really stuck out for me in that I think a lot of you are GMs in your real lives <laughs> because you all were amazing at um, adding in details and yes, anding us and, and like myself and I think Drew who both, you know, I, I certainly have never GM'd anything and I assume Drew, you haven't either. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> so it was great to be in a group that 
kind of spurred that along. And I think that's where a lot of the richness came from. I, d- I definitely agree. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of reflection and uh, bouncing off of each other where I don't think that many other systems quite do it as well. Um, like Powered by the Apocalypse definitely has that with the Bonds system. When we are doing the links specifically, I think that's really where it shines because each of us sort of go, hey, I'm going to thrust my character at you and we're going to have this interaction and uh, it's going to really make this world solid and real. And that's something that's just inherent to the Powered by the Apocalypse systems. Um, But I think also the inclusion of the Sanctuary, which is really something that Taylor and Rich and Richard put together um, really makes it shine since it's we're we're each in that meditative state and uh, we each put something into that sort of group meditative state and that really to me formulated that that those strong bonds also like uh, our, our great character voices. <laughs> yeah, when you mentioned the the sanctuary, um, one of the things that Richard did when he was GMing the game, which I've never seen done before, was he told us to close our eyes, take some deep breaths, and sort of get into a into a focused state. And I think that that had a big impact on on that uh, moment when we were creating that together. Yeah, I think that there was a real you know visual and kind of visceral just taking that moment to be calm and kind of be there together and imagine um, lifted a lot of the felt less mechanical and a little more personal just, just because of that. And I thought that was, I don't know that that would work in every game, but especially because of the kind of beautiful aquatic, mysterious psychic landscape of this game, it just felt very appropriate (laughs) into the moment. And I thought that was really beautiful. Drew, you mentioned you mentioned that you had um, maybe seen something different in this game, but what did you realize like, oh, this is what a game can be from this experience as opposed to either your conceptions of RPGs or something you've played before? I think it was really kind of the world building uh, that happened. And um, it was less about kind of classic tropes um, and more we were able to create something just that we had no idea about um and i think that really helped spur the creativity of the game and made the world um so much more unique than like a a D &D, uh campaign would be can you tell me just a little bit drew a summary of uh what that world was that we created so it was a uh place deep deep in the ocean um with a large crystal that has erupted um from the bottom of the the sea uh, and that crystal um, was a place where whales came to sing into um, and it would record their voices uh, and while the reason for them coming to the crystal to sing was to um, kind of sing their last words um, into the crystal so they would be remembered forever um, and then they kind of sink down into this death pond below it um, to um, I guess where they wouldn't decompose, so their bodies stayed whole, um, and then their their memory lived on in the crystal. It's really nice. Uh, <laughs> one thing I thought you mentioned, Stephanie, how kind of unusual it was to be utterly free to create the kind of creatures that we were. And James, I wondered if you could just tell everyone a bit. 
about the the character that you created because it's a great example of how wonderful and bizarre characters in this game can be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I played the playbook uh, The Redeemed, um, which is described as basically a war machine who is no longer uh, doing that role and has become a guardian. Um, and uh, on each playbook, uh, there are a few you know, possible descriptions of what the physical form your character takes. Uh, and one of the ones on the Redeemed playbook was uh, a, uh, I think it was a colony of organisms. Um, and that immediately just captivated my, uh, my imagination. So I created a character called the Republic of Kale, who was basically an entire ecosystem of organisms crustaceans and worms and stuff like that that had all uh specialized uh the entire ecosystem into uh, a war machine essentially and then had lost the ability to specialize from there and just remained as this war machine um and so this character referred to itself in the uh, using they them uh pronouns uh but in the plural um and the idea behind this thing was that all of the entities within it would vote together to decide what it would do um, which is just was so bizarre and so cool. I really loved that. I think the delightful thing is it was so bizarre, but it just worked perfectly. Like it was never once awkward. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I thought it was great. <laughs> it, it felt a little awkward making you guys refer to my character as the Republic of Kale uh, <laughs> using the full title, but uh, I think it seemed to work. It absolutely did. <laughs> it was never weird to Magnifica. Is anything is anything ever weird to Magnifica? <laughs> of course not, Trisky. We have to live in the Echo. So nothing is truly that bizarre. <laughs> so, Vijay, I think your character and mine specifically had uh, a special bond going on. And I'm not going to lie, I cried. I posted a picture to Twitter of me actually weeping like water from my eyes during this game. Yeah, I'm curious to hear a little bit about, like, what was the dynamic First of all, just between our two characters, but then why was that? Uh, why did you as a player connect with that? Well, I think when I think there's two things. One, uh, when I was picking out playbooks, I had already kind of seen the seeker or the seer before. And I was like, oh, I definitely want to play that. But I had also had some like, oh, the empath is really cool. So when you picked that, I was like, oh, this is awesome. We can play off each other. Um, and then when you picked your character name, I took one look at it and went, in my head, I am never going to be able to pronounce his name. <laughs> so we're going to give him a nickname. And <laughs> I did that specifically to torture you all. Um, I actually could not even pronounce the name of my own character. So I was really glad you gave me a nickname. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's just I'm kind of an empath in real life. Like I just I feel things and don't have like I, I feel things from other people and I tend to emote pretty strongly, especially in situations like this, where if I feel safe, I'll just like, like, like the di giant Nuda branch that, uh, Nuda bronc that Magnificent is just like, just all over the, <laughs> everywhere. Um, so I think there was this really important time where the, one of the first links in the playbook for the seer is, uh, you see something happen and you are upset by it who do you go to and 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 what is their response um and i think that set up a really important recurring theme in the game because what i said was magnifica saw something upsetting and they were upset by it 
And so they went to the pod's empath. And at that point, you had talked about how your empath was kind of a little a little bit dour, kind of a bit of a sourpuss uh, in and of himself. And so I feel like there was this whole like positive, like negative, like but sort of yin yang aspect where like Magnifica is just soft and love and but sees things that like needs context um so what what ended up happening is that magnifica saw something that was bad but we could stop it from getting worse and how trisky sort of helped her uh, helped them process through things was really important and then like we we sort of looped back on ourselves where you also did a link with uh, where Trisky did a link with Magnifica that was something similar, but I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. Um, and I felt like that was a very important piece of that role play where we set up that th recurring theme of uh, we're going to stop a bad thing from getting worse, but we're still going to, there's still going to be like some of that realism, um, which I think is why we all cried. <laughs> it's definitely why yeah. I cried, but I also find crying kind of therapeutic. I, I like feeling all the feels. Um. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little similar. I think, you know, this character, um, I, I imagined I, Trisky, Tirithisk, as being um, just kind of like wise and ancient and like having seen a lot of terrible things. Um, and in that sense, sort of scary and dark and bitter. But there's also built into the playbook this sense of it's not like soft, fluffy love, but like a deep sacrificial love of like this, like this person, this character would do anything to take on the burden, you know, on behalf of those around him that he, you know, loved or was caring for or was protecting or was counseling or whatever. And um, I think it was neat for me because I was worried in creating that character that I would be so scary and remote that it would actually be hard to roleplay as part of a group because, um, you know, it was a very sort of bitter, distant kind of character. And so it was really nice having uh, having Magnifica kind of just not be bothered by the scariness and like, oh, I can come talk to you. And like, you know, but where the two were very opposite personalities, there was a willingness to like both characters know that each other are there to make the world better for everyone around them and just have that connection. And that, that just felt really felt neat to me. So yeah, it, it was interesting to have uh, a game that from the beginning is kind of plumbing these emotional depths and sort of describing emotional roles as opposed to just physical roles. And I think that that um, was kind of a new, new experience for me. So we need to wrap up, but just say one thing that stood out to you about this experience that was, was specific to the design of Descent into Midnight. Okay, um, I'll start. Um, if anyone, if you guys have ever been, you know, to Gen Con, you wider audience, you'll know that oftentimes at Gen Con you're sitting in, or any con really, you're sitting in a room with other tables, lots of commotion all around you. You're in a weird hotel that used to be a train station, or who knows, you're in a weird goofy alcove somewhere. It's not exactly a setting that lends itself, you know, for these emotional kind of happenings. And so for me, like to have like all these distractions all around me, 
But to have this group of people, these basic strangers, all of you, not anymore. Now we're all friends. But before, you know, you come into it, you really don't know anyone. You're in a weird setting to have this game and this wonderful kind of time take you over and take you on this journey for four hours. It was amazing. And it's not it doesn't happen all the time. And I really think it was the beauty of this game and the willingness of all of you as playtesters just to be there with Richard as a GM and really um, and really kind of go on that journey together. And it really made it so special. And I, I just can't even say enough thank yous for that. It really meant a lot. I think to sort of piggyback on top of that, um, it was a diff, you know, it wasn't the best uh, environment, but I think that in particular, uh, I feel like Richard did a really great job of guiding the the conversation, keeping us sort of in that headspace where we could be uh, creative and imaginative. Um, and some of that, I think, comes from just the, the openness of the system. Some of that came from he had really great questions that he was using to lead us uh, when we were building the setting. Um, but I also think that part of that was just the, the way that he encouraged us to collaborate um, and kept us building ideas on top of ideas. And that's what I think that it was the setting and, and the characters that we made in that setting that were the most powerful part. Uh, and he sort of facilitated us distilling those into the, to the best they could possibly be. A bunch of my friends also played other sessions of, of Descent into Midnight as well. And none of their descriptions have sounded anything like the game that we had. Uh, which is, I think, really interesting, too. Uh, I have to say that probably the same thing I said on Twitter of uh, Descent into Midnight RPG, come for the setting and stay for the feels. Because <laughs> you will walk into this going, yeah, I guess I could be a merman, and then be like, but no, why be a merman? We could be a giant sea slug. Uh, and you'll just, you'll, you'll just make the best of friends with, with uh, with an elbow squid and a little crustacean in their tin can and a colony of sea crustaceans that were war machines and a beautiful cultivator who makes a wreath for a dying whale and i am still tearing up <laughs> about this game and it's but oh, i have so many feels and i was gonna say i mean i think there was a lot of great connection between you know all of us together. Um, and I think especially Jason and VJ had kind of amazing ideas that went into building the world. Um, and then everyone contributing in the characters and um, playing their parts. Uh, but I think the the books themselves actually helped guide me um, a little bit into thinking differently. Um, not coming from an RPG background, I really had no idea how to build a character that was some weird sea creature um and i think the way they guided uh me into the character creation um was great and let me explore something that i didn't think i would do on my own it really felt the same i was nervous about this like vague undersea game like you know i had no idea what to expect and i thought man i'm gonna i don't know anything about the ocean <laughs> like, i don't know i'm not gonna be able to do this and uh i felt yeah, that same, the, the guiding steps in the process uh, that were built into the process really helped me to feel free to just kind of run with things and imagine. And I thought that was really nice. And I really agree. I'm just, I'm so grateful to Richard. Um, 
Drew and I showed up fantastically late to the session, and it was my fault because I like got us lost and ended up in the wrong building. And so I arrived just all nervous and frustrated and flustered, like, oh my gosh, I'm like holding up this game. And um, and from the moment we showed up, Richard was just like, no, man, calm down. It's good. We're glad to have you. And it was just such a, a genuine empathy <laughs> and compassion, um, which... I don't know. That's the word that keeps coming to my mind is compassion. I feel like it's built into the setting and the design of the world and also the the people who create created this game. This is that is obviously an important value to them. And uh and then I was fortunate to end up at a table of players who can live in that space too. So, yeah, just a perfect storm of like great wonderful beautiful things coming together. A, a perfect storm, perhaps a perhaps a hurricane of emotions, <laughs> a tsunami of feels. Was 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 definitely that. I'll stop. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to get together and chat about this. It was really nice, just kind of revisiting that with all of you, and uh, I look forward to seeing you all again in some other context, some other day. Yeah, next Gen Con. Yes, possibly. Absolutely. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. Have a good evening, everyone. <laughs> Definitely. Bye. From the Crepuscule Notion, live under the Indigo Sun, this is The Truth Bleeds at Twilight. All the news and truth Saturine needs. And now, live from the field, we present an evening with the Notion. Meldrum here, live for the Crepuscule Notion. Repuscule. We're interviewing Order of Goetica names with late-breaking news. Please, names, uh, fill us in about what's been going on tonight. Um, well, so, uh, uh, are you here to talk about my research or the, the general stuff that has been happening in, in the hall? Uh, in the hall, in the hall, please. Well, okay, so, so it's, it's probably better if I, if I rewind just a bit. So, as, as you may know, I'm a researcher for the Order Goetica, and I tend to catalogue a lot of things, and, and a, lot of, a lot of angels and demons that you might not know. Uh, you know, the Order Goetica is, is, is so task-focused, it doesn't work on the research. Yes, um, yes, but tonight, what happened tonight? Yes, so, yes, tonight, well, there was a bit of an experiment going on. I had proposed that perhaps our use of circonation was more tradition-based than in actual necessity. Mm-hmm, go on. Um, you know, the, the, these sorts of things, they, 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 they need to be tested. And whilst I had some success... But my friend, the event, the event... Yes, 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 yes. So, the Order of Goetica had gathered for a commencement ceremony. And what better way to show off the new techniques of a Goetic than to introduce them with a newer Goetic? So the current Silver Mustelli, a very bright lad, I may have overestimated. Is he departed yet? Do we have confirmation on that? We are waiting for confirmation. How do you spell Mustelli there? I don't know. (laughs) I don't concern myself with the names of other people. I don't concern myself with my own name. Our names are just things lost in the aether. 
So would you say it was your disregard for other Vizlay that drove you to this particular incident? I don't disregard, they're just so much less important. Demons and angels run rampant and we use them to pick up groceries. So you're saying you're railing against your order itself and all it embodies? I, 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 would you I, put that on record? I, 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 Do you still consider yourself a goetic? I, I, yes, maybe, no, yes, 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 no. If anything, I am the, the epitome. Well, there you have it. Uh, it seems as though um, you may have just witnessed um, a de-ranking uh, in progress. We will get back to you <clears throat> with more shortly. And so ends our evening together. Thank you for stopping in tonight. Just a few housekeeping notes. If you're enjoying what you hear, it would be a tremendous help if you'd take a moment and rate or review this episode on iTunes or wherever you find us. And if you're interested in advertising, write me at secretseller at zeros.bar. For the moment, you can purchase an ad for just $5. This is a great place to put your thing in front of smart, nerdy, delightful people. Audio design for The Secret Seller is by Casey Ross. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games, with whom Zeros.Bar and The Secret Seller are unaffiliated. May you find freedom, my friends, from Shadow. Shadow.